Hello, and welcome to the Marketing Times Analytics Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Safranis, and today we're on with Dave Cameron. Dave, you've been on for season four before. I, I'm so excited to chat with you again. Do you want to give the audience a little introduction for yourself, uh, for those who haven't heard about you? Sure. Uh, well, this is my third time, Alex. I feel honored. Thank you. Um, my name is Dave Cameron. I am a 30-year veteran in marketing analytics. I, I started my career um, doing a lot in the database marketing space and, and direct mail way back before we had real-time feedback through, you know, the type of internet type of systems that we have today is archaic as that sounds and I've adapted over time. So I worked for a company called Merkle for five years, which is one of the top database marketing services companies in North America. Uh, they were independent at the time and I led their uh, analytics team and grew them significantly over a period of time. They now are owned by Densu Aegis. And then I went from there to Nielsen and got more into consumer segmentation, more into the TV side. And with today's emphasis on connected TV and trying to figure out how we leverage that for advertising, for marketing versus you know, previous linear, I find that ex an exciting space. But I ended up leaving Nielsen six years ago and took on a new phase. And for the last several years, I've been teaching part-time. I actually teach classes at four separate higher learning institutions. And I have my own consulting business where oftentimes I'm brought in more as an expert for, I'll call them early stage companies, not really startups, because they're at the stage where They've got a steady stream of business. They've been around for a couple of years. They don't really need a full-time analyst, but they've got periodic work like, hey, we have a client who's interested in optimizing their spend. Can you do a one-off model? Or we're trying to build a system where we can tie back visitors to our website to, uh, to what they're actually doing, what they're actually buying, and coming up with a way to, op to optimize the website and, and various communication with them. But once I'm done, then they don't really need anybody to do that anymore. And I'm really enjoying it because the big corporations all have people on staff. They do that on a regular basis. For me, going into the small companies, it's a way to give you know, entrepreneurs and small companies the advantages that some of the big companies have. Right. I want to zoom into how data prospecting lists come together, because presumably you're familiar with, you know, the, the database, maybe some do you, can you share with us about where that data comes from? What is the process like to even get that together to then build models on top of it? Yeah, and it really depends on the source. There's so many different ways. So um, I'm not, can you give me a little bit more of, say, a real world example yeah. that you're looking for? Yes. Yes. Uh, I want to build a prospecting database for every person in America. So let's use that as like the problem statement. Um, the different kinds of data that could be uh, put into this prospecting database could be purchased data, collected data, public, publicly available data. Uh, kind of like the second one's kind of like scraped data. So I'm just wondering, like, do you know about that process of buying data? I'm just curious. It's it's such like a you know niche uh, job <laughs> to to get those data sources and get them into the prospecting list, but that's a key part of building a prospecting database. Yeah, and it's really interesting because I've seen companies that you know they'll have their own, as you said, their own customer database. But what do you do for prospecting? And oftentimes they'll outsource it and they'll. Yeah, you go elsewhere and and what have you. But what I've seen in a number of cases is where they'll they'll kind of leverage people who come to their site, I guess. So they'll 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 work with a company to tag their website, and from the first party data that come in that are prospects, they've already come to the site, but they've never bought anything. So they're not a customer. They're not on your database. They don't match to anything there but they can go to one of these identity graph companies and say, well, they came to our website. We can match them up to something and then get the data and then pull them in and bring it into a prospect database. So I, I've seen that happen a fair amount. 
And it's as, it, you know, it's as, it's only as good as the matching is from all of that, but that requires them to go to your first party data set. I've seen a lot of cases where if they can work out an agreement, like let's say, or I don't know, pick a cruise line, uh, help me out here, Princess Cruises. Um, Carnival. Carnival, okay. There are sites like um, cruisecritic.com, which actually tracks addresses of who would come there and they can share those with you. And what, what, what it would be is it would be a fee to cruisecritic.com each time you mailed somebody or each time you targeted somebody in some means from that, then what would happen is, okay, you can store the name on your database, but because you don't really own the data, cruisecritic.com does, you pay them a fee each time you actually use it. And of course that can all be tracked. So a number of companies are doing that as well. So, so basically licensing of data is a big piece of a prospecting database where you're having data flow from other people you know, let's say they had different websites or the website networks, and then that data flows into the data, the prospecting database. Right. And one of the challenges, Alex, is let's say we'll stick to the cruise line example. Let's say you get data from cruisecritic.com, but you also find another site that's National Geographic site or something like that. What do you do if a name is on both of them? Um, and trying to work out the agreement so you're not double paying. Um, need some creativity and some legal setup up front because if you don't address it up front in the legal situation then you need to pay both sources for the name and, and, the, and the detail even though you got the exact same data from both sources hmm. very interesting it's funny i remember you brought up when we talked in, in one of our two previous podcasts you threw out the idea of having like a one-stop shop to buy data from like some sort of, um, you know, marketplace that wasn't within wall gardens that everybody could go in and access and be able to do channel mix and media mix and all that kind of stuff off of it. And that's definitely would be really helpful here because it becomes a challenge when you get to bigger companies that will license data from six different sources. And then what happens if it's on four of them, then if you have to pay all four, it's no longer cost effective to prospect. So can you maybe tell us about the different ways that you can identify an individual and how deduping works? Sure. Um, I tend to rely heavily on the companies with an identity graph because this is what they do for business. And, and I've researched it before, but my research is a couple of years old when I was doing it for a company that, that needed to. Um, I haven't really done a whole lot with them now because the companies I'm working with have already made a decision and say, oh no, we partnered with Newstar or, or we've partnered with um, you know this company or that company or, or, or whatever. There's so many out there and, and it keeps changing. Um, and so what in my experience is that if you can work with a company that's got a proven identity graph that can match across various devices. You know, they, they have a device graph that goes in there that can say, oh, here my son is, oh, so I have a 21 year old son. My son is sitting in the living room and our living room TV is a connected TV and that's one of the Wi-Fi networks you can go to, but he's doing it from his Samsung phone even though we don't have a Samsung TV, this identity graph has been able to link him to say, well, but he's in the same location. And based on, he's got his location turned on from his phone, and we know from the IP address of the TV where it is, we can start linking that. Those sorts of links start to get put together and put into the graph. And they're not perfect. IP addresses cycle. But it, it's, it's like I said, it's different things for, for Samsung, for Apple, uh, with phones. It can be done based on location. For the TV, if it's in your home and it hasn't moved much, the IP address is pretty safe. And so there are, I mean, for a while, there are different sources out there. And these companies like, you know, will literally spend full time trying to keep up, put sources together, trying to get to the point that, you know, hey, we're not reliant on Google third party cookies because if and when they ever go away, we'll be set. Uh, can you explain more about that? Like. What, what is going to happen with the cookies in the future and how will that interact with identity graphs? Yeah, so I think that's one of the reasons Google still hasn't phased it out because you'd probably agree, we've been hearing for a couple of years now that Google's going to phase out third-party cookies and 
a couple deadlines have gone by and they still haven't done it because it would be problematic to the whole marketing ecosystem and it would not do a wonderful job for Google's um, advertising revenue at this point. So they're still trying to figure a way to work it out. So it seems to me to be a little bit of a guesswork, but but I've seen some things that, and I, I'm thinking of a couple of companies I've talked to where um, they're really trying to leverage a lot more on location data and um, companies that measure that. They're trying to get device IDs. They're trying to use email addresses too. Email addresses is proving to be a major point of linkage right now. And that hasn't, to my knowledge, been nixed as PII at this stage. Although if I were in that space, I'd be nervous because to me, an, e an email address is PII. But our, uh, last I heard, our legal entities haven't put it in as such, but it is kind of a mess. I mean, what I've seen is when companies are no longer reliant on Google and take that out of the mix, their accuracy has fallen. Uh, I, I recently saw an example where their accuracy was 60%, whereas a year ago when they were using you know, third-party cookies from Google, it was 80%. So to be honest, a lot of them are still figuring it out, and I think we're in the early stages. So my question is... In the future, for media buying, will there be, do you believe there will be a unique ID for every person that is anonymous that will allow companies to effectively target at an individual level, even in what today we know is walled gardens? I do. I think we're going to get there, but I think it's going to take a long time. You hear a lot of things like open AP and people who are in favor of that sort of thing. And um, a lot of advertisers, a lot of players in the space would love for that to happen. But there needs to be a way to make it in the wall garden's best interest. How do you make something good for that's going to work for Facebook and Google? But not only there. I mentioned I'm doing a lot of work with connected TV and connected TV tends to go through the manufacturer, they call it the OEM. So Samsung literally has, for example, 50 million households that, are, that own a Samsung smart TV. Um, they have their own owned and operated inventory. So they don't have an incentive to participate in something like that because they're selling all their own inventory internally. And they probably don't know who owns the TV, but they know what the viewing is and they're building it off of that. And somehow if it could be raised that, oh, it could be to your advantage because if you participate in some sort of thing like you just mentioned, Alex, you can start getting more information beyond what they're just watching on your TV that could help you to target smarter, to get a better return on ad spend and all that kind of stuff. And those discussions, if they're happening, they've still got a ways to go. Mm hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. There's definitely a way to frame it so it's in their best interest. But in general, you're always, you know, as a company, you're always going to have an advantage if you're gatekeeping your audiences, right? That's that's generally going to be an advantage, and that's why we saw we see all the walled gardens. They wouldn't do it if it wasn't smart. So, I guess a, another question is from a regulatory perspective: Do you think? And, and I, I think the answer is probably that uh, legislation is going to come out to sort of force uh, the walled gardens to come up with something that can um, level the playing field a little bit so that, you know, Google doesn't get to keep all of their, you know, data in the walled garden and, and Facebook. And then like, you know, little mom and pop website here gets, gets nothing uh, from the pie, right? So it's like you have like certain... Uh, it's almost like a monopoly situation. I see it as, um, especially with the Google results. I mean, that's that's a joke. Like that's going to be a lawsuit at some point. Yeah, it, <laughs> it does seem that way. I mean, you look at what happens with CCPA, and there's other states that are following suit with privacy laws that are probably not as strict as CCPA, but are there. And in, in, in fact, it's, I think the challenge here is, you know, we've got 50 different states, and they all operate independently, and we haven't had like a stronger federal 
regulation, you know, like if you go for GDPR, how Europe got together and said, okay, this is what we're going to do. And it, it's funny, I was in England a couple months ago and I'm doing stuff on my computer and I keep getting blocked from things on my Google search that I would have seen in the US because they say, oh, this violates GDPR. And, you know, so it's like, okay, I had to go in and physically change my settings and everything like that, which, you know, I hadn't thought about. Um, but I was recently in a meeting with a client and they actually, because of the way their system was set up, could not target anybody in California. Um, they were a small company. They set up their system. They hadn't taken into account CCPA. And so they're, yeah, what percentage of the people in the U.S. live in California? I'm guessing 12. Um, so you're missing out on 12% of your potential audience there. And so from that, um, it, you know, they're not going to want to stay in that type of situation. But the reason they didn't think about it up front was because it is only 12%. Uh, whereas if it were 50, 60, it would be like, oh, wait a minute, we've got to take this into account. So it's almost like in order to speed up the rate of a unique identity for everybody that's anonymized or something in that area that we sort of see coming, the government actually has to put pressure on the private market by introducing private, uh, like privacy regulations. And that's going to take away business from, um, the ad the marketing or advertising uh, platforms um because more privacy means le worse targeting um then the business world will probably self-correct and produce that anonymized id to get around uh and more tight um privacy regulation right does that sound like it likely like a likely way it'll play out it seems more likely than you know like a federal regulation type of thing um i think we need to put ourselves in the head of the advertisers so let's take someone like procter and gamble which is could well be the largest advertiser in terms of spend in the u.s and they've got enough out there to put pressure on companies to make things change because you know they're they're so much a part of their business. So when I was at Nielsen, Procter & Gamble was our biggest within vertical I supported at the time, which was consumer packaged goods. Procter & Gamble was the largest client and actually was 10% of Nielsen's revenue in that vertical. Um, I tell a story, it's funny. One of the things I talk about in these podcasts is sometimes helping younger people. And I went to Procter & Gamble 12 times in the course of an eight month period. And in the same city as another client that's much smaller, and I never went to visit them. And someone who reported to me asked, well, why not? I said, well, because Procter & Gamble's paying 20 times as much to us as that other company was. So when Procter & Gamble says jump, I get on a plane and jump, or I drive to Cincinnati if I can't get a plane. With this other client, it's like, yeah, they're not even paying us enough to justify my salary. So I use that analogy because... Uh, clients aren't going to want to lose someone who's 10% of their advertising revenue, right? Um, or anger somebody who's 10% of their advertising revenue. So large advertisers could have some persuasive power in here to say, hey, you know what? And I'm not quite sure how that would play out because I'm taking it from the perspective of, you know, where I am. Whereas if you're Google, Procter & Gamble is not going to be 10% of your revenue, even if they are your biggest client. But if you have enough of them that get you to critical mass, then there's a business reason to change because you don't want to alienate your best clients. Interesting. So let's keep pushing on this Procter & Gamble concept. I really like this. So, we, so we're now Procter & Gamble executives and we're trying to introduce um, universal IDs for everybody in order to break down all the walled gardens Procter and Gamble would say probably something like we're forming an, a coalition of all, you know, cause they wouldn't do it alone. They would probably get like, try to get like 30%, 40% of the ad market together with like a few big players and be like, together, we are going to fix this. Like we all know this is a problem. 
that there's these walled gardens and these companies are completely rigging the system. It's so much fraud. And we know the industry is is ripe for a disruption. Um, And it's really a regulatory issue. So they get them together, then they make this case. And then they say to Google and Meta and X, Twitter, that we are going to stop spending money on your platforms unless you uh, unless you adopt this standard that we're developing for how to anonymously um, identify every individual using probably an identity graph, some kind of an identity graph. And uh, or maybe you connect the identity graph to that um, thing. Uh, it has to, I guess, have something that it is based off of. I don't know if it's social security numbers or whatever, but they'll create something. And uh, then they'll say, if you don't use this, if you don't adopt this, then we're going to pull back our spend and move to other platforms and other tactics that do allow us to have that level of addressability or something like that, where they're threatening using the spend, which is really like the, the leverage point to force this change. Is that possible? Do you think they, sh- they should go a different route about it? How would you recommend Procter & Gamble goes about it in this example? Yeah, and that's an extension on the direction I was going and saying, okay, well, at Nielsen, Procter & Gamble had a lot of um, clout if they were truly 10% of revenues for that vertical, which they probably were. Um, but for a Google, you know, it's a much smaller percentage, but the consumer packaged goods vertical is very large. And even if they stayed within there and said, hey, Procter & Gamble doesn't compete with Coke, for instance. So it would be very easy for them to put an alliance together and said, okay, um, let's talk about this. Or who else might be in there? I mean, they compete with Unilever. So maybe Unilever plays, maybe they don't play. But you start with people who have the same needs that are not competitive with you, but have the same sort of distribution. So Procter & Gamble has very heavy distribution through Walmart, more of their, in the U.S., more of their um, sales go through Walmart than any other channel, any other retailer. Um, And I'm sure there are other clients that have similar distribution percentages, right? People who are smaller, but might say, oh yeah, but you know, 25% of our business goes through Walmart because of how big they are and what they cover or through Target or whatever. And so I think that what you're saying seems like a logical next step to go from there. And let me give you an example, actually. When I first worked for Nielsen, um, so this was before these clients started selling direct. But if you take someone like a Coca-Cola or a Procter & Gamble, they oftentimes didn't know and still don't know who their end user is, right? Because most of their sales are through retailers. In the case of Coke, it could be vending machines or bars or restaurants. So they don't actually know who their end consumer is. They don't sell direct to consumer. Procter & Gamble does sell direct to consumer. They have a their own loyalty program, but it's small uh, relative to their total sales. And so Nielsen was actually a go-between to be able to say, hey, we have a panel of consumers that will scan what they purchase or scan their receipts and send it back to us. And we've got a database that will enable us to match it up. And from that, we can build a consumer segmentation. But the only way that consumer segmentation was going to happen is if we got the agreement from each of the participants to provide their shipments. So for instance, uh, I'll stick to Walmart. We had a panel of 100,000 people. Let's say in Walmart, 200 people bought Tide detergent. Okay, but we need to calibrate that to something because it's a sample. So if we know what Procter & Gamble shipments are to Walmart, just an aggregate, we can say, aha, so these people represent 1% of sales in Walmart. So we just multiply them all by 100 and we have a total. And so we actually had to do the same sort of thing you're just talking about, Alex, where we had to go in and say, we need to get enough players to participate to say that they'll provide us their shipments to by retailer, um, just at an aggregate level, and do it on a regular basis. In that way, we don't get biased results. And we have something to calibrate to. And 
at first we just had two clients and it wasn't going very well. But once we proved out the concept, we got 12 very quickly and then 30. And once we got 30, we had so many, uh, we had so much percentage of the store covered that clients started paying a lot for our service because they recognized that, hey, we know what the truth is and what was shipped. Uh, we've got a big enough panel to build consumer segments off of. So now we can't do one-to-one targeting, but you really don't for consumer packaged goods clients because you're selling through retail or wholesale or whatever. And so as long as you can get it down to their segments and how do you reach them and what sites do they go to and everything, that was golden. And, and it turned into a, a, a multi-million dollar product that Nielsen still runs today. But it wouldn't have happened if we didn't get the cooperation from these players to say, look, we don't need detail. We just need overall shipments because we know that's the truth. And that's our multiplier from our panel to the truth. Hmm. So basically you're using assumptions to scale what a sample to the whole population for a company to understand their audiences. Right. And getting the data on shipments from the companies gave us a truth point is now yeah, we don't know when they sell, but we at least know they shipped. So it's going to give us a pretty good idea of, oh, this panelist here is worth 2000 other panelists. This panelist here is only worth 1500 other panelists because of, you know, you have to get that representation adjust for their shopping patterns. Interesting. Can you tell us more, more about how you would go about deciding the ratio between these different kinds of audiences that you, you may have as a business? Sure. So let's say we started and we've got Procter & Gamble shipments and that's all we got. And we look at what client our, our panelists have bought and we say, oh, okay. Um, our panelists on average represent 1% of Procter & Gamble sales based on the shipments they provided us. So we multiply every single panelist by 100. And that's what our estimate is. But then we get Coke participating and we see, oh, well, Coke's got some different numbers here. And it might be for this panelist, you multiply them by 100 for Procter & Gamble, but you multiply them by 80 for Coke. Or another panelist might be you multiply by 100 for Procter & Gamble, but you multiply by 120 for Coke to get to their truth. And so then we get a third client in and we do it for Unilever. And then we say, ooh, well, it looks like the, this person would be 100 factor for Procter & Gamble, an 80 for Coke, but 110 for Unilever. And as you get more and more clients in, you start to be able to triangulate and say, oh, well, they're 80 here, 100 here, 110 there. 140 on this one. Let's add them all up and do a weighted average and see what we got. And that original 100 with Procter & Gamble now moves to 107 for panelist one, maybe 101 for panelist two, maybe 93 for panelist three, and so on. Because now we have more inputs. We have more clients participating to be able to see how the purchase patterns vary by person. And then by the time we were done with 100,000 panelists, you know, we might have had 50 different factors out there because we'd had enough clients to come in to be able to differentiate and they still averaged a hundred, but they may have gone as low as 70 and as high as 130. Oh, you're talking about an index. Yeah. Yeah. No, a, a factor that okay. you multiply the panelists purchased by. So if the panelist said, Hey, I bought six bottles of Coke. You say, okay, that panelist represents a hundred other people. So now we would say 600 bottles of Coke were bought from people in this segment, right? Right. So you're, yes, you're, you're trying to as you're sort of reverse engineering a customer, almost a bottoms up view of what was sold to the audiences and the companies only have the top view of how much was sold to the merchandisers, the distributors, but then they had, there's a black box and then only like Walmart knows who like, well, I'm sure Walmart's studying very closely who's buying Coke for Coke on behalf of Coke <laughs> so that they can actually optimize selling it, right? Like the, that's not a Coke's job. Like Walmart's happy to do that job for them because they're going to make a bunch of money off of it, right? Because Coke is losing profit by not going direct to consumer, but they're also saving a lot of costs. Right. Um, well, Walmart, so it's... Now I was going to say Walmart sorry, doesn't say know, that. And, and they're uh, 
reason for participating is they don't know what people buy at Kroger. Uh, Kroger is the biggest grocery retailer in the U.S. They don't know what people buy at 7-Eleven. And whereas for Coke, that's a big deal. And so Coke would recommend strongly to Walmart that they participate in this as well, because then Walmart recognizes, well, sure, 10% of Coke sales make up a number. 10% of Coke sales go through Walmart, but they want to get a view into that other 90%. They want to know how much goes through Kroger. They want to know how much goes through restaurants. They want to know how much goes through other channels as well. So it works both ways. The retailers know who buy from them, but they don't know the share of wallet, right? Mm. Well, that's where competitive data comes in. And I'm glad we got there because now this this kind of goes back to a previous topic about that prospecting database. And I think competitive data is super important for, you know, depending on the use case, it could be helpful in B2B um, advertising where you want to know if, you, if, you know, other companies, employees have a certain product installed on their computers, you can actually buy that data and see like they don't have this software. Like if you're trying to sell Tableau and they don't have any data visualization software, you know that's a prime target. Or you see they have Power BI. Now that changes how you talk to them. So this competitive data can extend to Walmart wanting to know what Kroger is selling um, and stuff like that. Like I'm sure there is some kind of data that is exchange that could be exchanged that's competitive. Um, can do you know about? Um, I guess do you have any examples of how that that type of data is collected? How that like competitive data can be collected. I don't know a lot about how it's actually found or, or yeah, collected. there's two different ways I've seen. So the Nielsen approach was actually, like I said, to create a panel of 100,000 panelists. And then from that, it was a big enough sample size where you could see, you know, what brands are they purchasing? And what retailers are they purchasing them from? So as I was moving toward, we had something like 66 different segments that we created out of there. And then based on what retailers they shopped at and what brands they bought, they got assigned to a segment. And then we knew the totals because we knew Walmart's total sales. We knew Kroger's total sales. We knew Procter & Gamble's total shipments. We knew Coca-Cola's total shipments. So we had a proof point to calibrate to. And so when I say those factors where I say one panelist, one segment of panelists might have all been multiplied by 80, another segment of panelists might have all been multiplied by 120 because we calibrated to that known truth set. Um, in the B2B example you gave, it goes back to licensing data again. So one of the best players out there in, in tracking intent data is a company called Bombora. And what Bombora does is they have... Um, agreements with hundreds of thousands of publishers and they if if you somebody in a company starts going to a website like suppose they go to tableau's website and then they go and they look at microsoft's website for power bi and i don't know if click still exists but if they do they go and look at click's website and that kind of stuff bombora might, might have agreements with them and let's go back to your example let's say they go to tableau's website and they bounce around but they don't go to microsoft sites but your client is Microsoft. Bombora would sell the data to say, hey, look, um, there are people at this company that are looking at your competitors. Um, this would be a good time for you to pop in. And again, it's like you said, it's that licensed data we talked about earlier where you pay Bombora a fee for that and they're able to say, great, we can target that company because somebody from that company has all of a sudden stepped up and started doing web searches on data visualization software, but they haven't come to us. They've gone to, they're looking at our competitors. Let's make our, let's get in that consideration set. Yeah, I got it. So it's almost like um, the gossip, like the office gossip. Like there's, there's some, there's some players who sit there and their whole job is they love to listen to what all the other people are saying. And then they say, hey, you wouldn't believe what this guy said or what that guy said or whatever. And this is like the professional version of that where they're like, you know, now we'll sell you this. It's like, we, we, you know, we're listening to all of them and we'll sell you those insights. Um, but it's functionally similar to a gossip. <laughs> yeah. And if you can combine it with your own data, even more so. So if you have, um, let's say you are a firm that's selling software. Okay. 
and you're selling software and you have several other competitors in your field. So if they are coming to your website and you see a, uh, what they call an intense score or a surge score from Bombora, you get both of those. That moves you up to the top of the line because you know, well, wait a minute, they're coming to our site and they're doing a broader search. And so you're getting the facts from what they're doing on your site, but you're getting the gossip that, well, but they haven't really decided on us. So we are in the consideration set now, but they're narrowing down the brands and now is our chance to jump in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then this might be a good time to bring in like audience segmentation. This is, a, this is another piece that's really close to what we're talking about, where once you can identify somebody or yeah, so once you can identify somebody or at least like what audience they're in, then depending on the specificity of your company's audience segmentation and understanding of who your core audiences are, you will know within a certain range about the behavioral traits of your customer too. So I know at least for my business, we have customer, uh, we, we have audiences, key audiences, and we know all sorts of things about them. Like you, like the audience would be surprised actually how much we know, um, at an aggregate level. And, um, you know, and it's no surprises. That's always the best. That's how you know it's right. When, when there's no surprises, when the data tells you exactly what makes sense, um, you know, who you would imagine, who do you imagine uh, is watching most TV these days? Like we can all like <laughs> pretty much guess. Um, so that's also important because as you're like training your salespeople, um, to be like if they're doing outbound or if you're doing advertising to these people you need to you need to understand as much context as you can about them and that's why that's that's another benefit of this identity graphing and understanding your audiences and then connecting that to data you're collecting on where's the opportunity right so like you, you know, the person is interested and they're in this audience um I don't really have a question, but no, I, um, I, I, do you I'll agree take, with that? Yeah, I'll take it. I, I actually am getting a lot of work on consumer segmentation right now. And it's funny because early on, I was skeptical because before we had any privacy concerns and when the cookie first started getting used, you'd see all these blog posts and even books on one-to-one -one marketing. And you can go back decades and find stuff on this. But I'm finding a lot of use for it. I mean, Google originally said we're going to go to Flocks from, you know, whatever the third party cookies they're doing today. I don't remember what a Flock stood for, but it's it's a form of segmentation. I actually led consumer segmentation at Nielsen for three and a half years and the business was growing. Um, and so what I'm seeing a lot is that I'll go back to my connected TV example. You might be Ford Motor Company and you've already bought what would used to be called airtime, but with dynamic insertion, you can swap out the creative. So they do basic rules like, oh, if you're watching ESPN, you get a Ford pickup truck ad. If you're watching Hulu, you get an SUV ad. But if you go deeper than that and you actually build segmentation off of viewing and demographics and things that you can match together, you now go beyond say four segments, like four segments could be by product, a Ford car, versus a Lincoln, versus an SUV, versus a pickup truck. Now you can go to the next level and start saying, oh, but I can add viewing patterns to that if I'm working with someone who's got that TV insight. Or I can add in demographics or at least small area demographics. So for a Ford, they would be able to very easily get the zip code of who's watching and they've got Polk data. And so they might actually look at my neighborhood. You know, I live in Palatine, Illinois, and I'm in a section of town where they're all four bedroom houses and two car garages. So it gives you a sense for, okay, they've got enough space. They're not living in an urban area. They, they've got room for probably two cars and, and that kind of stuff, probably, you know, families. So they're going to want something that's got enough going on there. And every so often it's going to be wrong. Uh, and my neighbor two doors down, uh, I don't know what he does for a living, but he's got a Ford, but he's got a pickup truck. But most people in my neighborhood have SUVs. They've got, you know, what, he, what you think would be fitting a four-bedroom car with a house. And so someone like Ford actually segments based on that and uses it for dynamic insertion in smart TVs when they're buying data from like a Samsung or a Vizio or an LG. But they're in the embryonic stages. And so for me, I see it as a growth area. 
and I see it to your point earlier about an identity graph is being able to even have an interim step, right? Because if you're going to do it by a small area geography or a segment, um, you aren't as reliant on as much detail and matching up as you would be in, you know, in a, in a one-to-one privacy world. Yeah. And everything we're mentioning can be done anonymously. Like assigning somebody to an audience is is very privacy compliance. Like just saying like we're reaching the, I mean, that's how we already do it. It's the, the real challenge is how do we standardize the IDs that are used? Because everybody wants it to be their ID. Because if it's your ID, then you're going to make all the money from all of the everybody using your IDs, <laughs> like every right. So like, how are we going to ever agree on it is certainly a question I have. But I think that the answer is probably legislative. I think it's going to come as a forced. I don't think anybody's going to freely give up um, their, you, you know, their their data. And I don't think anybody's also going to be able to just grab the entire market you know, in front of Meta and all these giants, like, I don't, I don't see that happening without, you know, the hand of the government coming in and making a sweeping change. Yeah. And I just think that's going to take a long time. I don't think the government really understands our industry. And of course, there's also special interest groups that, you know, larger companies can, uh, can try to influence and things like that. I mean, we've seen it happen. We've seen uh, Facebook a few years ago, got called on the carpet because their algorithms like for ad targeting was saying, oh, if it's a job for janitorial work, they tended to be targeting minorities. If it was a job for nursing, they tended to be targeting women, things like that. And you can look it up. It, it was in 2019 and Facebook had to adapt. And, and, and it's just part of it. It's one of the themes of saying, okay, as stuff like that happens, but it's kind of piecemeal, right? It's like, oh, well, that was one thing. All right, we're just going to modify the way we do ad targeting. But it didn't give them any kind of incentive to open up the wall of garden, right? It just gave them an incentive to say, we need to be more cautious on what we put into our models and have somebody actually look at it and make sure it's not discriminatory. How can models be discriminatory and how do you account for that in model building? Well, it's because the input that comes in. And so with... The Facebook example I just gave, and again, it's public, so I can share it. In 2019, they had they one of the applications they had was matching up people to help find the right job prospects. So, you know, kind of like LinkedIn would do, but uh, but really being able to say we're going to have an algorithm to do it. But what happened, as I said, is like for janitors uh, and and the like, because there's a heavy percentage of people that are Hispanic immigrants who are doing it now that influenced their algorithm. And similarly for nurses, because nurses tend to be historically heavily female, not so much so in, in recent times, it's gotten more closer to 50-50, uh, that came out. So what you need to do is you, you can't just toss it into AI. You can't just toss in a machine learning algorithm. That helps the process, but that's why you need people like us to be able to go in and think about those things and say, how do we correct for that? Um, I have another example with Google. With, they, did, they didn't roll it out, but Google decided they were going to test their recruiting similarly in their own internal algorithm and say, okay, what was the most likely reason people got hired or, or the most predictive reason people got hired and the least predictive pe reason people got hired? And the least predictive made a lot of sense. It was, oh, you've got a lot of certificates, like you finished Coursera or Udemy or a bunch of these, but you actually don't have a lot of experience or you don't have a degree or something like that. The, the certificates are the big driver. And that makes sense, right? But on the flip side, they said one of the most predictive attributes is having the first name of David. Well, aside from the fact I should have applied at Google, we all know that's the bad idea. And what happened was, they had turned it over to a machine learning engineer and nobody thought to say, wait a minute. Okay, you've got their name down there. Don't put their name as part of the algorithm. That's, that's oh you know. Oh my God, because it's a proxy. Yeah. And so um, just thinking those things through and you and I would immediately know, no, that's PII. I can't put that in my model. 
But again, someone who just happens to be a behind the scenes machine learning programmer at Google just takes everything he has and puts it in. So you need people who can talk into and, and like I said, Google never rolled that out. They shared it actually to say, here's the type of stuff you should avoid. And so I've used that example before. And um, and I'm sure there are smaller companies that just don't think about that or some companies that say, oh, we'll just turn it over to machine learning. And so it's, it's, you have to be very careful about the data that you put into your algorithm. Yeah, basically, um, you need to apply common sense to what you're doing. And it's actually really hard to do if you are like a super technical person or an AI, because the skill set to do that is completely different than the skill set to then connect the dots and say, is this group of variables going to predict what I want to predict? And does it make sense? Is Are these things that make sense? And that's what you're describing when you see something like the first name and you're like, no, like we can't, we, we should, it's not best practice to do it that way. I mean, it, it's extremely interesting, obviously. I love that example. Um, but, uh, you know, the, at, when, you, when you're lo looking at a model output, there's almost always going to be like the when you have the first pass, you're going to see certain variables. You're going to question it and say like, what is that variable? How is that calculated? Does, you know, should we include that? Can you rerun the model without it and see something like that? So um, it requires that like 20,000 foot view to uh, apply to all of the technical stuff that's happening just to give it a, 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 gut, a gut check and say, does this even make sense? And AI is going to have a really tough time doing that, like super hard, because it's like, how do you teach it how to have common sense? I don't know. What's what's your take on that? Yeah. And I think we talked about this on a previous podcast. You had said something about, well, do you think AI should even exist? And my answer was yes, but as a tool, not as the be all and end all. And to me, that's as much senior management education than anything else. So if you hear somebody at a senior level, say a vice president at a company or something, and they hear all about how great AI is and how great machine learning is, and they said, oh, this is wonderful. I can improve my model and I can actually reduce some of my workforce because I don't have people doing all this work. Well, you don't reduce your workforce. What you do is you reallocate for them to think about the type of stuff we're talking about instead of having to say, oh my gosh, I got to code all this. I got, you know, put all this in and all that kind of stuff and figure out how to deal with this API. And, oh, I just pulled this through from Power BI. It didn't, the data's not set up the way I want it and so on and so forth is freeing up that sort of time to say, thinking more about the context, making sure you are avoiding biases and making sure that, uh, I'm paraphrasing you, but at the end of it, it passes the sanity check. Um, I, t I totally agree. And uh, I wanted to ask one final question here, which is that um, in my estimation, Apple will be poised to be the central node of data collection uh, over the next few years, assuming they don't get destroyed by regulation, which I doubt they will. Um, but they might. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I frankly have no idea. Um, but whatever happens, I think Apple is poised because they have this amazing data collection device that, you know, the, the iPhone, because it can literally collect every not like you don't even realize like it collects like the pressure of the room that you're in uh, via your weather app. Like it's extremely um, good at collecting data. So obviously Apple is poised to be a central node in a player in this identity ecosystem because they have their, they connect all your health stuff, all of your, every, every aspect of your life, basically. Um, do you agree? Do you think that they have a, maybe, maybe it's like Apple you know, in addition to Google and meta and, and whatnot, um, who do you think is going to like, has the best chance of really like owning this ecosystem in the future? I agree on Apple, but it also is reliant on people that have an Apple smartphone. I, I, I imagine they have the largest share, but Samsung's no slouch in there. And so, you know, I, I would imagine Samsung isn't has a big enough market share that Apple's going to have a lot of white space out there. It's see the, the thing about it. We talked about Google earlier. 
Google has like a 90 share of the search market. I mean, there's not very many people who use Bing or competing ones, Yahoo these days or anything like that. So one of the things that makes Google so powerful is they got a 90 share of search and Facebook can't say that, you know, even out of the audience, uh, Apple can't say that. So I don't want to lose sight of that either. Um, I, but I agree with you to an extent, extent in that all the stuff Apple knows and people don't know they're collecting. And I mean, shoot, I wanted to even, I, I have an iPhone. I can't even set my alarm clock separate without Apple knowing what time I'm setting my alarm for, you know, it, it, I couldn't turn it off unless I turn off the entire health app. And it was annoying to me because you used to be able to keep them separate, but they merged them somewhere along the line. So it, it just shows what you have to say. But the, I, I guess the only wrench I'm throwing into it is still, yes, but unless they get a 90 share like Google, there's still going to be enough out there that people are going to say, yeah, that's helpful, but I'm still missing a lot. Yeah, totally. Um, I think last I checked, they had about a 60 to 65% share of market. And um, uh, yeah, I'm so interested to see what happens. I feel like we're all like, well, we can't break them up because they're just the best. Like somebody make a better iPhone and like the, the market will pick it. It's just like there's no other um, option that has the same level of dedication and ecosystem uh, stickiness. Yeah, and, and, you know, and that's, the, that's the issue with Samsung. There's no, yeah. like the ecosystem is just not there the same way. Yeah, and that's a really good point. It's like with Microsoft, if you look at Office, it's it's like I was at a company where they switched everybody over to Google Suite and everything, but it's so pervasive and so many people use it and so much time has been spent into it that, you know, it, it's the best thing out there in terms of an Office Suite and even Google being free, free you know, couldn't unseat them, they could just, cut into their share a little bit. Um, and so I, I get where you're coming from, from that one, because we do have, for all of these different type of platforms, there's a dominant player. Apple's more dominant than I thought with 60 to 65. They're just not as dominant as like a Facebook or a Google or you know th those sorts of platforms that are Microsoft, where within their field, you know, if you're not on it, you're more of an exception. <laughs> yeah, totally agreed. And so I guess we, we'll see what happens in the future. I think we it, it, a lot of great ideas um, shared here today, and I can't wait to look back on this episode, at, you know, in, in five, 10 years and see how things turn out. Yeah, I'm sure, um, I'm so. sure we're going to be wrong on a lot of stuff. We're going to be right on a lot of stuff. There's a, there's a lot of things I, I wouldn't Absolutely. have guessed that have happened and, and have happened. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Okay. Well, thank you, Dave, again, for joining. This has been such a great discussion. I love having you on the podcast. I'm sure we'll do it again. All right. Thanks, Alex. Thank you. And thanks everyone for listening. We'll talk to you soon. All right. So let me end the, let's end the recording and then 